4: I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's <laughs> Military History Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Gary Bain. Once more, I've been joined at my ass by Peter Hart. Morning oh, Pete. hello, 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 hello. And today, Pete, we're continuing in our mini-series. It's not so mini, is it? No, uh, of the... Uh, uh, the uh, Battle of Jutland. I nearly forgot what we were doing. <laughs> it's easily done. And what's this episode called? The Clash of the Dreadnoughts. Dun, dun, dun.
4: Notes. No, <laughs> that's <right. laughs> Idiot.
1: Yes, yeah. now, where where are we, Pete? What's been happening? Are oh, you going to tell us? No, you're going to tell us about the race to the north and the race to the south. And,
4: race to the south, and, race and to and the, the north. And yeah. the engagement
1: of battle cruisers. You're going to set the scene.
4: Yeah, we've just done it brilliantly, Gary. So we've had the battle cruiser action, then we've had the... Uh, the arrival of the high seas fleet, uh, the, and the the bah, turn, run, run away, and then we've had the the race to the uh, to the north, and we've had the uh, the escape of the battle battlecruisers covered by the fifth battle squadron, and we discussed the fact that that had been Shear's biggest opportunity, uh, uh, but in actual fact, the uh, the strength of the fifth battle squadron had rather seen him off. Uh, and there's been much damage on the German ships as there was to the British during that phase. Not uh, forgetting, of course,
1: the uh, the actions of the destroyers between the lines. We that, we discussed that as well.
4: We did discuss it, and uh, that was quite exciting. And, and I often say that that's, uh, the destroyer actions in that phase were probably as big as uh, most battles in the Second World War, most naval battles. Uh, but they get glided past, and we are indeed glided past. We should past.
1: do these podcasts close together more often, then i remember stuff. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about the, the Douglas Haig 1918 episode? Who is Douglas Haig, you said to me the other day. Now, now as the battle raged in the south, south
1: Admiral Sir John Jellicoe's Grand Fleet was thundering down across the North Sea. <coughs> desperate to reach the scene of the action.
4: Yeah, they were. Uh, how, are they, how are they disposed? Well, he's got 24 Dreadnought battleships, and they're in six line abreast columns. So how many, Gary, in each line? Uh, four. with beating Gary. And we got it right.
1: Yeah. Now, surrounding the main body of the fleet, to foil any <laughs> attempted submarine attacks, which, you know, he'd expressed concerns about, were the fourth light cruiser uh, squadron. squadron and the squadron screening destroyers, I've lost my teeth, and the screening destroyers are the 4th, 11th, and 12th flotillas.
4: And ahead of them, uh, there, there's a sort of outer screen, uh, the, the, uh, well, it's dodgy, the uh, 1st and 2nd cruiser squadron. They're old, protected, and, well, cruisers. <laughs> that's, that's the name suggests. Yeah, including <laughs> the name.
1: And they acted as a further screen to prevent surprise and to recon it the way forward.
4: Yeah, uh, and finally, some 25 miles ahead, it's sort of advance guard the whole fleet was the 3rd battle cruiser squadron. Which is the ones that have been practising their gunnery, which is why the fifth battle squadron was with the battle cruiser fleet, and they've got their own destroyers and light cruisers. We, we, we right. Uh, what is the grand fleet? Would you say sum it up for me, Gary?
1: Well, it was the mightiest fleet that had ever existed, and it re- represented the vast bulk of Great Britain's naval strength. That's it did. interesting, actually.
4: Yeah, I, I think this is a point that. Well, it's a point that Jellicoe made, uh, and he made it repeatedly. Um, in, Je- in Nelson's day, there'd been a lot more ships of the line. There'd been hundreds of minor v- vessels. The Battle of Trafalgar was not between the whole of the fleet, the British fleet, the Royal Navy, and, and the, the, uh, the French and the Spanish. It was about a third of them. Uh, and if he'd lost, it wouldn't have been the end of everything. Uh, now, how does that differ from from a uh, from, uh, uh, Jellicoe's situation?
1: Well, 20th century technology demanded that all Britain's eggs were placed in uh, just a few baskets, as oh, it were.
4: Oh, one basket in particular, yeah, that's absolutely right. And and that means that Je- Jellicoe had an enormous burden on his shoulders. I'm not saying it's more than uh, Nelson, but in a sense it's different, isn't it? It is.
1: Now, getting back to, to yeah, the action, back, back the initial wireless report for the first contact with the Germans... When was that made? Just it remind. It was made you. at 1418... Uh, We've mentioned the timings before. uh, And that had been intercepted aboard the Iron Duke. So what did Jellicoe do? Well, he immediately ordered the fleet to raise steam to allow full
4: speed. Uh, Full speed ahead. A vast behind, etc. Now, uh, more reports come in, uh, culminating uh, BT reports 1540 that he'd uh, sighted Admiral Franz von Hipper's uh, five battlecruisers, right? So, yeah. So what happens then?
1: Well, the third battle cruiser squadron, commanded by Rear Admiral Sir Horace Hood, aboard the lucky Invincible, name that Hood, yeah, and accompanied by the inflexible and indomitable, was sent forward to reinforce Beatty as quickly as possible. Hood increased speed to twenty-five knots and moved rapidly ahead. And this is Midshipman John Croom uh, aboard HMS Indomitable of the third battle cruiser squadron.
4: We could feel the vibration as speed was increased and the grim calm of suppressed excitement settled on everybody. At this moment, the grizzled old sergeant major came up to me to report everything in the turret correct. I noticed the curious fact that for the first time since I'd been in the turret, he saluted me with perfect precision. He reserved for marine officers and added a rolling, sir! At the end of his report, an honour not previously accorded to me as a sailor of tender years, I thought to myself that perhaps there was at least one old-timer who felt as excited as I did myself. That's fantastic, because he was a midshipman. He's only 16 or so, you know.
1: Now, although Jellicoe was confident in the superiority of his four super dreadnoughts and six battlecruisers over the German battlecruisers, he was left in considerable suspense by an absence of reports from any of his subordinates in the battlecruiser. Yeah, this
4: league. is a, an, an ongoing problem. Beatty and his subordinates, uh, with the exception of Goodenough, uh, Sir, uh, William Goodenough on the Southampton, they're useless. They don't send the, the reports in. Uh, however, Jellicoe gives orders to prepare for action at 1510. Um, and you can imagine the scene going. Can you imagine those six columns of four battleships? Dum, 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 dum. As the ships
1: raced on and the tension inside them mounted, the men stuck far below decks would not have been human had they not considered exactly how they might fare if the worst came to the worst in the coming battle.
4: That's the thing about ships. You're you're almost completely safe unless...
1: (laughs) Something goes wrong. Yeah. Now, Now, when at uh, 1638, news was received by the previously mentioned Goodenough aboard the Southampton that the High Seas fleet had been sighted. So Goodenough
4: doing his job again, eh? Uh, He was nicknamed Barge, by the way. Barge good enough. Yeah. Barge good enough for you, sir. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Sorry, I've thrown you. <laughs> I like that. It's a great nickname. Wish I always called Barge Heart.
1: I'll start calling you Barge then.
4: Now, uh, uh, now Jellicoe, uh, what would he have expected? The high seas flees out. What, for, what would he have expected to happen then? Well,
1: he would have expected this definite sighting would allow the Admiralty to release the Harwich Force from their enforced inactivity. But they were held in port in case elements of the High Seas Fleet should move south.
4: Uh, That's a little bit mad to me. And this meant... Remember, we mentioned that Jellicoe had always thought he might not have the the destroyers of the Harwich Force. I mean, you know. Anyway, 1640, Jellicoe makes the long-awaited signal. What was it, Gary? Fleet action imminent. <gasps> now the fleet the fleets are racing towards each other now. And you remember you've got to double the speed because they're going in opposite directions, if you see what I mean. Um what would you think is most important for Jellicoe at this phase?
1: Well, that he's given all possible intelligence of the exact location and course of the high seas. Why, fleet. Gary? Why? Well, if he was to make an informed decision, he needs that information as to the method and direction of deployment of the battle fleet from the existing six columns into a
4: single line. Because that's how what, they're not going to fight in six columns, they're going to go into a line. That's how Jellicoe envisaged the battle being fought. Um, well, there was another problem. What might that be? Unfortunately, Beattie's and Jellicoe's
1: navigational positions were out by a collective er- error of nearly 11 miles. That's not
4: going to help. Yeah, and th- th- we've talked about this before. GPS didn't exist. It's dead reckoning. Uh, it- it's not accurate. Um, now, Beattie was, in fact, miles to starboard. That's the righty-hand side, Gareth, uh, of where Jellicoe expected him to appear from. Uh, now, uh, what, what does Beatty do as he uh, approaches the Grand Fleet? He, he knows roughly where he's going to be. He adjusts his course to north northeast So what he's doing, Gary, is bending across the rough area where he presumes Jellicoe would emerge. Why is he doing that?
1: Well, he intends to screen Jellicoe from view and at the same time close in once again on Hipper and his Indomitable battlecruisers. I thought the
4: Indomitable was a British battlecruiser.
1: That, where anything beginning with I is. Hmm. At yes. 1740, oh. firing once again broke out at a range of about 14,000 so, yards.
4: Because remember, the, 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 they'd been out of red, they'd bent away and left it to the 5th Battle Squadron. But now the Battle are back in range. Uh, so who's firing now? Well, it's a combination of Beatty's Battle Cruisers and the leading two ships of the 5th Battle Squadron. And they're, they're absolutely wellying, another technical term, Gary. Uh, uh, HIPAA's battle cruisers, and they get a considerable number of hits, particularly hitting the flagship, the Lutzow.
1: Meanwhile, the third battle cruiser squadron had pressed on their south southward course to such an extent that they passed beyond the line at which they should have seamlessly joined their comrades in the battle cruiser fleet. As a result, the Lion was to the southwest, as opposed to straight ahead of the Invincible.
4: Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's it, it they've gone a bit far. Uh, uh now what's round Hood's battle cruisers? The usual screen of light cruisers and destroyers. Um, and we pick them. on one? Should we pick on one? Which yeah,
1: one? HMS Chester. Who's who commands that? Uh well, Captain Robert Lawson and at 1727, the uh, the Chester heard the muffled roar like that of heavy guns to the southwest and was ordered to investigate by Hood. As they moved towards the gunfire, the men aboard the Chester soon
4: sighted flashes through the general mist and murk. I can't emphasise too much how how gloomy and misty it is. It, it, it's weird. Now, the Chester runs straight into, straight into the, the German second scouting group. Who's in that, Gary? The Frankfurt. You didn't want to say Wiesbaden, did you? No. <laughs> Pillau. After my recent lutz
1: disaster. <laughs> now, the Chester was a new ship commissioned less than a month earlier, on the 2nd of May. Oh,
4: uh, what
1: does that mean? Well, the crew was barely trained, with a mass of new recruits and a few old sorts. <sighs> Helping
4: the youngsters along. Exactly.
1: As Lawson sighted the light cruisers, he swung round to starboard in an attempt to bring his main armament of ten 5.5-inch guns to bear, but he soon realised the perilous nature of his position and he ran for it to the north, heading towards Hood and the battle cruisers.
4: Now, the, the, the Germans got the range quickly and their shells splattered all across the Chester's upper works. They really hit home because, sh- I mean, it, the, what's the pervain that a light cruiser does not have much armour? Uh, so the shells bursting everywhere. First aid parties have to administer to the wounded. And this is what steward Reginald Gulliver of HMS Chester said.
1: What a sight. It will remain in my memory forever. An officer was lying dead with both legs severed in sea boots. I stepped over a body that had been disemboweled. I had to hold a seaman's foot while the doctor cut it off as it was just hanging. There were bits of body all over the deck. We laid the bodies side by side and were told to turn them over on their stomachs.
4: Now, the the Chester is jinking about from side to side. It's trying to dodge the shells. And some of them, to some extent, it's successful. She's fleeing for her absolute life and the lives of everybody on board. Uh, But then, suddenly, rescue. What's the rescue? Well, it's close at hand. And uh, this is what signalman
1: Charles Ruddle
4: aboard HMS Chester says. I called out, invincible, sir. It was a great relief. They steered past us and gave us a great cheer. My leading hand asked for me. He was lying on the flag deck port side. He was quite natural. Asked for a cigarette. He took a couple of pulls and then was sick. He said he was dying. I said, no. And he tried, I tried to cheer him up. He was leading signaller George Din, about 30 years old. I, I know he was getting married next leave, but it wasn't to be. As he died two days later, and that sort of thing's going on all the time. Uh, there's uh, there's one one of these casualties that's you know is particularly famous. Who's that?
1: Well, the boy sight setter on the uh, the forecastle, five point five inch gun crew, remained at his post awaiting orders despite the mortal wounds he he received in a shell burst, which killed the rest of the crew. Who is this? Jack Cornwell, aged just sixteen emerged from subsequent newspaper accounts of the battle as the epitome of youthful British valour and selfless dedication to the higher cause.
4: Yeah, uh, and uh, he, be- he, be- he becomes, as you say, a hero. He's awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross, the youngest recipient of that award in the 20th century. Now, I think this is interesting, because if he was a great if his stomach was out, then I'm not sure he could have moved in the- at the best of times. But... And and a lot of the the actual details of what happened seem to have blurred away uh, with time or or with uh, propaganda, um, but but uh, we both think, don't we, that what do we think Jack Cornwall stands for?
1: Well, he stands as a, a a fair and deserving representative of all the inexperienced members of the Chester's gun crews who died during the violent baptism of fire. So
4: he he sta- he's a sort of every man for them. he's uh, it, so it's it's a, it's a and he was brave. He was killed, and it's uh, to us it's uh, uh, a notable award. Uh, where's he buried? Well, he's he buried. buried in- he's,
1: he's local to us. He's in Manor Park Cemetery. Um, which in 2016, I think, was given uh, a, a grade two listed status, his his memorial.
4: And there's film of He was buried about twice, wasn't he? Sorry, I'm not being... Uh, he busy. was originally
1: buried in a pauper's grave, I believe, uh, and it was moved. Um,
4: because there's film of it, isn't there? Yeah, there is.
1: Uh, and that just, if anybody wants to visit the uh, Manor Park Cemetery, is in, uh in uh, London E7. It's sort of near North, north uh, Woolwich, I think.
4: Ooh. Now, uh, so right, so that's going on now. Uh, so 1637, we've said, to hold it on the Invincible. He hears the firing and he supports the Chester. And he, as we said, he arrives in the nick of time. Uh, so what happens when he arrives? Well, once in position, the battlecruiser's guns
1: roared out. Now, here they were truly in their element. They caught a group of German light cruisers cold and had little to fear from their relatively diminutive Opponent.
4: Well, this is what battlecruisers were all about originally. They're, they're certainly, these. this is the invincible, isn't it? Uh, now, the recent
1: intensive gunnery practice, which you referred to at Scarpa Flow, paid off as they hit
4: home almost immediately. Yeah, the second scouting group is in real, real trouble. It is. Uh, who's worst hit? The Wiesbaden was worst
1: hit as the 12-inch shells crashed down and disabled both of her engines, leaving her stationary. The Pillau also received engine damage but escaped fleeing to the south in considerable confusion.
4: I'd be confused if I'd been hit that much. Um, now, there's another destroyer clash. It's another one of these actions that would be a major battle in the Second World War, but, but uh, we, we can't deal with it. It's to, the, we can't go on forever with these podcasts. Uh, what are the German destroyers trying to do? Well, they... they-
1: Launch an attack on the 3rd Battlecruiser Squadron, which results in a spirited action with British destroyers who sought to distract the locally superior destroyer forces from their target by the sheer vigour and their land of their attack.
4: And they do that. Uh, uh, Now, what... So, during... So, this is... I'm sorry, we're leaving that. It's really interesting, that battle. Read about it in Jutland by Peter Hart and Nigel Steele. But, however... What's happened with the main thing is the main bodies of the main, 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 main thing is that the main bodies of the fleet are mainly in Spain. No, no, they're continuing to close on each other. Uh, the, the, what's what's the, the thing that you most notice about the fact they're closing on each other?
1: Well, despite that, neither commander had any clear idea of where their opponent was situated. On the sea? Yes, on the main. <laughs> Jellicoe knew that somewhere just over horizon was a high seas fleet and a collision point was inevitable in the near future. His need for accurate intelligence was becoming ever more desperate as the Grand Fleet was still deployed in its cruising formation of six columns abreast.
4: So... uh They've got to deploy it into a single battle line, and they've got to do it before the Grand Seas Fleet's in amongst the them. The High Seas Fleet. Oh, God, I keep getting that wrong. That's about the fifth time you've had to correct me for that. Because um, uh, if they were still in, if they were still in columns, that then they they they'd be densely packed. They're ju- they're, they'd they're be high. havoc, wouldn't it? D- it, yeah, would, but- it? all the
1: much-vaunted superiority in numbers would count for nothing if they failed to deploy or deployed over hastily into a tactically inferior position. They'd be buggered. Technical term. But in the absence of accurate contact reports, Jellicoe was effectively operating in the dark.
4: Yeah, with every passing second, its quandaries getting worse. At 1756, there's the first visual contact between the main units when the Lion sights the leading battleships of the Grand Fleet. Now, this is... Uh, I don't think the maps will help you, but the 7,000 yards to the north of uh, of Beatty. Uh, so uh, the the the, be, be, the if you've got a picture they, they, it's not far and he continues to bend across the front of Jellicoe's approach. So rum, 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 rum. and Beatty goes just to the south bends across to the south of them. Uh and that and as he does so that forces back uh Hipper's battle battlecruisers just under the sheer weight of their fire. Uh wow. Uh uh Now, this time, Admiral Burney, which ship's he on? Uh,
1: The Marlborough. Even you could have said that. Uh,
4: That was leading the starboard column. They sighted Beatty's battlecruisers. Uh, Now, what about that collective error we mentioned uh, in navigation? What what, about navigational position? What was it then?
1: Well, it meant that the Grand Fleet had got far closer to the danger zone before deploying than Jellicoe would have wanted.
4: Now, at this point... How did Be? What did Beattie and Bernie do? Did they send detailed uh, things to Jellico? Did they inform him of everything he might possibly want to know?
1: Well, they they failed to realise that in the poor visibility, Jellico couldn't actually see. What they could see, and their reports to him were either unhelpful or um, shamefully opaque. In desperation, at 1801, 1801, 1801 <laughs> Jellicoe signalled, Where is the enemy fleet? Did he put you bastards at the end of the. He might as well <laughs> have done. What was rapidly becoming apparent was that the Grand Fleet would meet the High Seas Fleet some 10 to 12 minutes earlier 9-11. than expected. No, and that the Germans would be rather more to the starboard than straight ahead has had originally been
4: expected. Uh, Not one of the advanced British ships uh, report to Jellicoe exactly where Shear and the High Seas fleet were in relation to the the Grand Fleet. None of them. So can you picture the scene? Picture it, Gary. There's Jellicoe. He's on the Iron Duke. Uh, He stood there and every passing moment, propelling him inexorably towards the battle that will decide the future to him uh, in his mind of the British Empire. And it's just a bloody awful, to use another technical term, problem. I didn't feel I could say intractable at the time.
1: No. And this is Admiral Sir John Jellicoe aboard HMS Iron Duke. Before it was possible for anyone to realise the difficulties which confronted me as Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Fleet at the Battle of Jutland, it is essential for a clear idea to be formed and clearly kept in view of the two main factors to which those difficulties were entirely due. These two factors were 1 the absence of even approximately correct information from the battlecruiser fleet and its attendant light cruisers regarding the position, formation and strength of the high seas fleet. Two, the lack of visibility when the battle fleet came in sight of a portion of the high seas fleet, due largely to mist and partly to smoke from our own battlecruisers and other vessels.
4: Mm. Do you think there was a clenching of teeth?
1: Mm. Yeah, possibly.
4: Now, the tactics... The Grand Fleet tactics, they'd long been enshrined in uh, uh, Jellicoe's Grand Fleet battle orders. And what had he made abundantly clear, Gaz? That in almost no
1: circumstances would they be exposed to ambush by German submarines, destroyers
4: or mines. He's not going to take any risks with his dreadnoughts that underpin Britain's maritime supremacy. Now... uh, You've got a picture it. So the line and the battered survivors of the battlecruiser fleet are drawing across the front of the Grand Fleet. And then at last, at last, at last, at 1814, the clear information finally reached Jellicoe aboard the Iron Duke, confirming the exact location of the Grand Fleet. High seas fleet. Uh, did I do it again? Yeah. I've gone bonkers.
1: You've <laughs> gone. <on. laughs> now, this information arrived in the nick of time. Jellicoe could have waited no longer. Now was the moment of decision, the moment that would define him as an admiral and decide his place in history. It's Captain Frederick Dreyer, who commanded the Iron Duke, captured the moment when a slight, self-effacing man made the decision that could have changed the course of history. And this is Captain Frederick Dreyer.
4: I then heard at once the sharp, distinctive step of the Commander-in-Chief. He had steel strips on his heels. I like that touch. (laughs) He stepped quickly onto the platform around the compasses and looked in silence at the magnetic compass card for about 20 seconds. I watched his keen, brown, weather-beaten face with tremendous interest, wondering what he would do. With iron nerve, he had pressed on through the mist with his 24 huge ships, each weighing some 25,000 tonnes or more, until the last possible moment, so as to get into effective range and make the best tactical manoeuvre after obtaining news of the position of the enemy battle fleet, which was his objective. I realised, as I watched him, that he was as cool and unmoved as ever. Then he looked up and broke the silence with the order in his crisp, clear-cut voice. Hoist! Equal speed! Pendant! South-east! Now,
1: (laughs) that's controversy over the deployment, centred on whether Jellicoe should have deployed onto the starboard or central column and engaged the high seas fleet earlier on and at correspondingly closer now, range.
4: Can I explain this? They're in, if they deployed onto the starboard one, they'd have gone almost in to the, um, the high seas fleet. If he deployed on the centre column, they'd never practised that. They'd have got completely lost and just been in a bloody mess. If they pro- deployed onto the port column, which is what he did, then that put them crossing the T... So the germs are heading straight in. What do I mean by crossing the T? Well, it,
1: it's it's an old naval um, uh, tactic, and it, it means that you can bring all of your guns to bear upon the target.
4: That's it. So, how do you achieve that?
1: Uh, well. <laughs>
4: Yes. Yes, I think he had. And, and and what what would you say about anybody who, uh, who said he should have deployed on the starboard or central column?
1: Well, I thought you was going to see, say this because you often describe it uh, as vague generalisations that are born of gross stupidity.
4: I oh, wanted you to say that. I like you being grossly stupid.
1: <laughs> but at this point, we'll take a short break. As the deployment of the Grand Fleet commenced, the 1st Cruiser Squadron, under the command of Rear Admiral Sir Robert R. Butnut, aboard the Defence, found itself in an extremely awkward and dangerous situation. Now,
4: these, these cruisers, armoured cruisers, I remember the uh, thing, they're they're, they're, they're they're pretty obsolescent, aren't they? Uh, uh, you, you, they're, and they're acting as a sort of dispersed screen. Uh, where, would, where did they find themselves? In the dangerous waters between the Grand
1: Fleet and the High Seas Fleet.
4: Yeah, now... Arbuthnot pulls the defence, the warrior and the Duke of Edinburgh together. The Duke of Edinburgh is trailing slightly, which is why. (laughs) Yes, never mind. And they set off towards the sound of the guns. Uh, They're heading straight for the Wiesbaden. Well done.
1: The Defence and Warrior cut across the battlecruisers and began to pour their 9.2 inch shells into the Wiesbaden, which had survived the uh, malevolent attentions a few minutes earlier of the Onslow. Yeah,
4: that was in the destroyer action. Uh, uh, that uh, that as a bit of a non secretary I haven't mentioned it before. The, the, the Onslow was part of that destroyer battle we were talking about earlier. Now, we, do, we, do we know what uh, Arbuthnot was doing?
1: Well, we don't know whether or not he could see the German battlecruisers from the Bridge of the Defence. Why don't we know? But they could certainly see him through the uh, variegated mist and smoke, and we'll come to why if we don't know.
4: <laughs> mm.
1: In just an instant, funny, 1820, really. Arbathnot and his men meet their doom.
4: Now, here here, here we've got an old favourite back in the action. Commander Jorg von Hayes has hazed, oh, for God's sake... Uh, on SMS Uh, what What does our favourite say? In the misty grey light,
1: the colours of the German and English ships were difficult to distinguish. The cruiser was not very far away from us. She had four funnels and two masts, like our Rostock. She's certainly English, Lieutenant Commander Hauser shouted. May I fire? Yes, fire away. I was now certain she was a big English ship. The secondary armament was trained on the new target. Lieutenant Commander Hauser gave the order. 6,000! Then, just as he was about to give the order, fire! Something terrific happened. The English ship, which I had meantime identified as an old English armoured cruiser, broke in half with a tremendous explosion. Black smoke and debris shot into the air, a flame enveloped the whole ship, and then she sank before our eyes. There was nothing but a gigantic smoke cloud to mark the place where just before a proud ship
4: had been fighting, and everybody on the defence is killed. Uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. That a lot of the the, the, the people who are witnesses say the ship was blown to atoms. Uh, there is some doubt now. Uh, it's an impression, and we, we don't need to get. Why why am I uh, why am I sort of doubt that it was blown to ash, blown to atoms.
1: Well, because uh, recently divers and marine archaeologists discovered the wreck to be in a remarkably good condition for a ship that was reportedly blasted to smithereens.
4: Yeah, <laughs> which is quite interesting. But there's, clearly it was a big explosion, and clearly the ship was instantly wrecked and smashed. So was it you was know, Now, who's behind the defence? Well, we, we, we said that.
1: We mentioned the Warrior. Uh, and the german shells now started to crash down all around her scoring 15 or more direct hits and uh, the end seemed inevitable then
4: suddenly a masked stranger comes to um, a rescue who is that masked stranger
1: well it's it's really quite strange as the fifth battle squadron uh, approached the area of the grand fleet deployment vice admiral Hugh Evan Thomas had very little idea what was going on Citing the starboard division led by the Marlborough, he made the not unreasonable assumption that she was leading the whole battle line. So in other words, that the fleet had already deployed to starboard. So his first move was therefore to attempt to take his rightful uh, Pre designated station at the head of the line in front of the Marlborough. This led the 5th Battle Squadron eastwards back into the cauldron of fire <gasps> from the leading ships of the High Seas Fleet.
4: Ah, but then he spots that they're deployed on the port column and he turns sharply back to the northeast, uh, intending to tag on at the back of the battle line as the deployment was completed. Now, this is the point where the masked stranger. Rescues. Uh, yeah, rescues. this is quite
1: strange. As this second manoeuvre was taking place and without any warning, the War Spite seemed to be Our favourite. Yeah, seemed to veer out of line and head directly for the Germans. Yeah, a steering had jammed. She began executing a huge circle that took her dangerously near the German line. But to the intense relief uh, relief of the beleaguered crew of the Warrior, she acted as a magnet naturally attracting German shellfire from a disabled old cruiser to the much more lustrous target of a super dreadnought offered on a plate at close range.
4: Now, we did a whole couple of uh, episodes, was it two or three? I can't remember, on on the war spot, and we loved the war spot, and it was great because she's going around, and they finally fix the steering, but when they fix it, they send her off on a second turn, second circle. It's the most amazing story. Um, So who's firing at her? Well... (laughs) <laughs> the uh
1: Frederick de Großer, Stupidity Yeah st-
4: gross stupidity Uh
1: Koenig Helgoland Ostfriesland, Suringen, Nassau and Oldenburg. So they're all blasted away, are they? They're all having a go at the war spy at various times with both main and secondary armaments at varying ranges from 9,500 to
4: 13,500. It's <laughs> worth remembering that the, the main armaments have to be uh, 12-inch guns, but it's worth remembering that the, the, the secondary armaments are 6-inch guns, which are in themselves big guns. But nevertheless, the great
1: ship seemed to shrug off the German shells, and this is Lieutenant Anthony De Salis
4: aboard H M S Moresby. Uh, he's yeah, he's watching. He says, "Warspite was being continually straddled, and I remember seeing the greater part of a salvo land upon her. She appeared to do something that can be best described as bounce." under it. The whole ship seemed to move or give to port under it momentarily and she rolled a little but seemed to recover and went on firing immediately afterwards. I remember thinking what magnificent ships they were. The impression made on me of the essential value of heavy armour armor for any ship in the battle line has remained as a conviction with me to this day. These ships, they're super.
1: Dreadnoughts. The men of Boulder were totally reliant for their survival on the strength and resilience of her armour protection. This was no battle cruiser with a mere six to nine inches of armour. Uh,
4: what did she have there? Just remind me.
1: The Warspite had 13 inches of protection over her turrets, magazines
4: and main belt. And that's intended to keep the, the German shells out. And for the most part, that's exactly what it did. Uh, despite, despite the absolute... Splattering of shells hitting her. Uh, the captain of the ship at that time, we haven't mentioned before, but it, uh, let's name check him now: Captain Edward Philpotts. He manages to regain control of his ship, and 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 their ordeal is at an end. But it's interesting. He wants to rejoin the line, but he gets told, "No, bugger off home." Uh,
1: Meanwhile, the third battle cruiser squadron, having to some extent overshot the battle headed on a westerly course straight towards the orchestrated tangle of ships that marked the deployment of the Grand Fleet.
4: So they're turning back, and and then, yeah. Uh, Now, rear Admiral Horace Hood aboard the Invincible, he he gets the situation at 1817, he swings his squadron round in succession, so they turn that way, and then back the way they were going. uh, To place himself in front of the emerging battle line, uh, just two miles ahead of the line. Is it a good idea for the Invincible and her two sister ships to be at the head of the battle line?
1: Uh, not really, is it? Mm. Mm. As the third battlecruiser squadron settled onto its new course, the German battlecruisers suddenly emerged from the mists on their starboard beam.
4: Now, the Germans, this is one of those perfect situations that can only happen at... Well, not only, but let's see. The British... Could see the Germans, the Germans couldn't see them. Do the third battlecruiser squadron take advantage of this situation?
1: They do. They made excellent shooting at the German battlecruisers who found themselves almost helpless. Naked. In front of their enemies. Under heavy pressure, Hipper's line bent back to the east and began to lose coherence individual ships took avoiding action to try to mitigate the effects of the salvos crashing around them.
4: Can anyone give us an idea of what's happening?
1: Well, once more, I'm going to relate what Commander George von Haas of SMS Derflinger says. A severe unequal struggle developed. Several heavy shells pierced our ship with terrific force and exploded with a tremendous roar, which shook every seam and rivet. The captain had again frequently to steer the ship out of the line to get out of the hail of fire.
4: Now, the reports are sent back to Scheer, and and, and, and he, he becomes aware. It's a, the, only at this time, Gary, that he becomes aware that he's facing more than the battlecruiser fleet. Something's going on here. And does he know what proportion of the Grand Fleet's there? No, that is the outstanding question.
1: Just how much of the Grand Fleet had he stumbled into? Had he finally achieved his dream of entrapping an isolated portion of the fleet that he could destroy? Or, 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 or? Or had he inadvertently walked into the nightmare of (sighs) Jellicoe's crushing embrace? I was
4: trying to build up the tension there.
1: And I did. Shear still had scant available evidence on which to judge his next and most crucial course of action.
4: Yeah, but then then a couple of minutes later Shear could finally see the problem that faces him. He's not run into an isolated Porsche, he's run into the whole bloody Grand Fleet. Not not this isn't this isn't an isolated detachment right, right for plucking going. No, the
1: tables had been turned and it was Scheer that faced defeat. And this is Admiral Reinhard Scheer. Oh, this is going to
4: test your voice acting (laughs) to the limit.
1: Above the SMS Friedrich de Großer. Blücher, Blücher. It was now quite obvious that we were confronted by a large portion of the English fleet. And a few minutes later, their presence was notified on the horizon directly ahead of us by rounds of firing from guns of heavy calibre. The entire arc, stretching from north to east, was a sea of fire. The flash from the muzzles of the guns was distinctly seen through the mist and smoke of the horizon, uh, though the ships themselves were not distinguishable. This was the beginning of the main phase of the battle. There was never any question of our line veering round to avoid an encounter the resolve to do battle with the enemy stood firm from the first. Well,
4: only for a couple of minutes, actually, but never mind. Uh, now, the 24 dreadnoughts of the Grand Fleet, we've talked about their, their names before. They, de- they, they are completing their deployment from six columns into one bloody battle line. And and, and uh, this is just the most incredible sight. Um, and, and they open a thunderous fire. Could I have some sound effects, please? Um, Bang! Bang! It's nothing compared to your voice acting. This is Lieutenant Stephen King Hall, HMS Southampton. Uh, That's that light cruiser. That's a light
1: cruiser squadron, yeah.
4: A long line of battleships stretching away literally for miles to the northeast and generally curving round the Germans presented an inspiring and heartening spectacle as they proceeded majestically along. Salvo after salvo. Bang, bang, bang. Belched out from the long line of these great ships Now confronted for the first time in their career With the enemy they had waited to see For so many weary months Wow The battlecruiser fleet had
1: suffered Grievous loss But they had accomplished their primary mission They had delivered the high seas fleet Right under the guns of the Grand Fleet
4: So what, what would you describe this as?
1: Well without doubt this is Der tag. Oh. But the hour was late. There was only a limited amount of daylight left on the thirty-first of May.
4: Yep. Yeah, but they're they're still hopeful. It they they surely the Germans are trapped. That they they're going to want to fight it out. As Nate, that this is it's going to be two great lines of battleships slugging it out with each other in a in a fight to the death. Or will the Germans cooperate with that? Do you think?
1: Well, this is what Lieutenant Reginald Elgwood aboard HMS Vanguard says. It was some sight. Too wonderful and literally awe-inspiring to describe. After 22 months of war, they were the first German ships I'd seen, and it was jolly nice to feel one was firing at them. Though honestly, at first, it was very hard to realize that those were the huns opposite us, and though it was not simply an extra special target practice. Similarly, it was very difficult to realize the ship might get hit, although one did occasionally see shells making a splash in the water. They might hit other ships, but I could not conceive of them hitting us.
4: Yes. That's that's the old faithful,
1: (laughs) isn't it? Everybody thinks that.
4: Yep. Now, the guns, the guns, the guns, the the raison d'etre of the Grand Fleet, the massed 15-inch to 13.5-inch to 12-inch guns, why are they built? What are they for? One reason
1: and one reason only to engage and eliminate the enemies of the British Empire.
4: It's a denouement,
1: isn't it? It, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The denouement of the drama was approaching as this vast array of almost unimaginable artillery strength and power was turned at last on the high seas fleet. All the
4: drills, all the exercises, now at last they're roaring out. their primary function is being fulfilled, to smash, to destroy, to rend and kill Germans. And uh, this is what midshipman John Brass of HMS Orion said. At last, after what seemed to be an eternity, we got the order. Load, load, load. This really meant business, and the crash of the mechanism and hiss of the hydraulic pressure made me feel better. Another long pause, and I found my mind concentrating on the breeches of our own guns, containing their huge 1,350-pound shells and accompanying cordite. I have never really got used to the shock of the first gun to be fired in any action, either practice or realistic, and I suffered the same apprehension at Jutland. It quite took my mind off the possibility of the enemy hitting us, and a good thing too. Bring all guns to the ready! A moment of deathly silence, and then, crash! The first salvo was off. Immediately, the tension snapped, and the whole turret, men and machinery, sprang into life, whilst one broadside after another was pumped into the enemy.
1: Wow. The noise was terrible. The percussive shock ripped into their ears, assaulting their sensory perception anew with each salvo. Oh, Gary! (laughs) In the gloom. It was difficult to identify specific ships. It was also hard to determine which ship had fired which shelves, with so many firing at once at the same target.
4: The Germans have got
1: an even bigger problem. What's that? <laughs> uh, well, one-way visibility, blinded not by light but by mist. They could not respond properly to their tormentors.
4: Now, uh, many British... They, they, a lot of them thought, wow, the Germans aren't firing. They, they've lost their nerve. They've lost the bottle. Uh, and then... And then, then this is naval warfare summed up. 1830, just for a fateful moment, the visibility situation changes. The mists seem to open up before the Germans, and right there, in front of them, they saw the third battlecruiser squadron. Oh, God. Uh, now demonstrating they haven't lost their nerve, uh, what's given a chance, what, what do the Germans do? Well, it doesn't take them long, uh, the German gunners, to react. Now, which accent are you going for with your third? Yeah, I'm struggling
1: here because this is now a third person. Commander Gunther Patchen aboard SMS, SMS Lutzov. Meanwhile... We had turned to the south, and suddenly there appeared, plainly and comparatively near, an English battlecruiser of the Invincible class, four points aft. I cannot express the delight I felt at having one of these tormentors clearly in sight, and like lightning, the orders were given.
4: Another hmm. you know cousin of says <laughs> Now, the worst of the German challenge is concentrated on the leading ship. What's the leading ship of the third battlecruiser Well, it's the got the flagship.
1: Invincible. The... Uh, progenitor of all battlecruisers.
4: Is this something she'd been
1: designed to face? No, her speed was meant to be her protection, if you remember, but here she was facing two heavily armed, better armoured, and all-round more modern German battlecruisers at a range where it was only a question of where the shells would hit that would determine her fate.
4: Yeah, her her armour, the light armour of the Invincible, could not hope to withstand this sort of, Punishment. So it depends where the shells hit. If they hit somewhere bangy, then they'll blow up. If it hit somewhere unimportant, they'll be fine.
1: So she's relying on luck to luck, be our salvation.
4: Luck. Yeah. Uh, on board the Invincible is gunnery commander Dan Ruther. Uh, he's uh, uh, Herbert Dan Ruther, and he's on he's up he's up uh, up the mast. And this is Commander Very Hubert similar.
1: Hubert Dan Ruther aboard HMS Invincible.
4: Admiral Hood hailed the gunnery officer in the control top from the forebridge. All firing is very good. Keep it quickly as you can. Every shot is telling. This was the last order heard from the Admiral or Captain, who were both on the bridge at the end. Now, this isn't funny because this is just the whole thing again. When things go wrong, it's awful. And the, the Invincible blows up at 1834. Uh, what happened?
1: Well, yet again, the thin armour of a British battlecruiser had been found wanting under the random probing of heavy calibre shells. The moment a German shell penetrated the midship's turret of the Invincible, she was doomed as the flash raced down through the working chamber into the magazines below.
4: It's like a match thrown into a box of fireworks, if you like. Uh, It's awful. And this is what leading seaman Reginald Bowden of HMS Yarmouth. He's watching, and this is what he says.
1: Suddenly, a dark smudge seemed to pass along the leading ship's side, the Invincible. Then, she disappeared into a huge cloud of smoke and flame. The upper bridge awning was blown high above the smoke and looked like a huge parachute with the iron stanchions that supported it dangling below it. As soon as the force of the explosion was over, the whole thing plunged into the sea. It was awful that a ship could go in seconds like that. Not so much the ship, but those living souls with her.
4: Absolutely. Uh, now, this is an example of someone, one of the very few that survived, Marine Brian Gasson. Uh, he's a rangefinder, and he's actually inside the ill-fated Q starboard midship turret of the Invincible. When the world explodes around him, this is what he says. It, it, this is amazing. Suddenly, our turret Matt. A turret was struck between the two 12-inch guns and appeared to me to lift off the top of the turret. And another of the same salvo followed. The flashes passed down to both midshipmen, midship, not men, midship magazines containing 50 tons of cordite. The explosion broke the ship in half. I owe my survival, I think, to the fact that I was in a separate compartment at the back of the turret, with turret, with my head through a hole cut in the top. Some of the initial flash must have gone through to my compartment as I was burnt on the the hand, arms and head. Luckily, my eyes escaped. I must have instinctively covered them with my hands. The rangefinder and myself had only a light armour covering. I think this came off, and as the ship sank, I floated on the surface. Wow. I mean, he's basically blown out to the back of the turret. Mm.
1: Now, of the crew of 1,032 men, listen to this just six survived uh including commander dan reuther who later estimated that the invincible sank in about 15 seconds i'm gonna say that again pete 15 seconds
4: and this is what uh hubert dan says she went down the crash and i was pushed out of her When I came up to the surface again, I was a bit out of breath and saw a target floating by. So I went and got on it, found two other fellows there. The bow and the stern were right up, leaning on the the, the bottom. Uh, And basically, he goes into legend because he basically steps from this floating target to to when he's rescued. Um, Wow. Now, what has the explosion done? By the way, we'll put up pictures of this. There's a picture of it exploding and there's a picture of the aftermath. What what has the explosion done? It's famous. Well, the force of the detonation
1: in her midship's turret rent the Invincible in two. As the middle section disappeared in the Titanic explosion, the wreck took up a, a bizarre configuration with both bow and stern standing erect out of the water.
4: So the, it's just, it's just an amazing, because it's only about 90 feet deep there. And it's, these are big ships. This is, well, well, you're going to tell us what leading signalman Alec Tempest, who's on the lion, says.
1: The two halves were drifting past us. We would be doing about 26 knots. There were about 12 to 14 survivors clinging to the bow and stern. There may have been more. The thing which struck me was the terrific spirit shown by these men. To the best of their knowledge, there was only the most remote chance of them being picked up. Yet they hung on with one hand and waved and cheered us on, many being swept off by our wash. A terrific spirit.
4: Now, uh, they could see the men dying in the water, but they have to sweep on. And and the the ship stays like this for quite a while. It's a sort of monument to the failure of British battlecruiser design, uh, some people think. Um, And uh, uh, the uh, the stories in the book, my book, uh, Jutland. uh, about how a lot of the sh- people's passing, they don't know what's happening. And pe- some of them are even cheering. Hey, another German! Hey!
1: Yeah, there's no idea what they're looking
4: at. No, no. And uh, this is midshipman John Ouvry, who's on HMS Tiger, First Battle Cruise Squadron. He says this. I felt quite sure it was a German ship, so I-, I passed to my six-inch gun cruise. The wreck of a German ship is now in view on the starboard side. And the six-inch crews gave a great cheer. Two minutes later, the signal boatswain on our bridge rang me up. He said, did you see that ship on the starboard side? I said, yes, I did. He said, did you read the name of the ship on the stern? I said, no. He said, it was the Invincible. I was terribly depressed. And that, that there's a lot of accounts like that. It really was a weird sight, Gary. Uh, uh, have you seen the picture? I of have, have. yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's just amazing. Um, now it stayed like that
1: for some time and few observers could conceive that these were the remains of a proud British warship.
4: Some people thought it was a Zeppelin. Remember, in a ship, most people can't see. you. If you get anything, you just get a glimpse and it's just too weird. Too As weird. the
1: mist closed in again and their visibility deteriorated, the Germans had renewed difficulty in ranging on their opposite numbers.
4: And they start getting a pound in again. Hard pounding, Gary. That's your motto in life.
1: The the sinking of the Invincible was a triumph, but it didn't change the basic tactical morass within the high seas fleet. Uh,
4: Well, yeah, Uh, if you think about it, Gary, I I can tell you you're getting emotional. Uh, No, I'm getting confused. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're now... Jellicoe has crossed the T. He has now got a fully fledged battle line. Uh, the shells are crashing down on the leading German battlecruisers. They're crashing down on the High Seas fleet. The High Seas fleet has had its T crossed. They are in real, real trouble. What's gonna happen, Gary? What? You don't. Oh, well, it's
1: dear tag. Surely there's going to be this huge engagement and someone will be victorious. Hooray! the British Empire will live. Yeah, or not. Let's find out in the next episode. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete.
4: Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah. you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, blah. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com www. Www. backslash mh or visit
1: www.blahblahblahblahblah
3: and we'd be jolly grateful cheers planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go
0: to Quince.com/slash trip for free shipping at 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient Make the same no brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code Program.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee.